But it seems to me that winter and the cold longer and progressively each year keeps getting longer and longer. And I have a really... Can you tell I've had a bad attitude about it? Attitude... I mean, we, we deal with that with our children, right? When, when they're growing up and as, as they're growing up. It's, sometimes it's, it's not what they do or what they don't do that gets under our skin. It's their attitude. It's not what they say or what they don't say. It was the attitude that they used to say it. The, the importance... Um, of attitude. Attitude makes all the difference in the world. If, if you face suffering, um, and, and I'll use Tom and Dan as an example, I'm sure they'll tell you that some days they have bad days. Not just bad days physically, but bad days emotionally, mentally, and they, they, have, they maybe have bad attitudes. And when I say bad, it doesn't mean they're wrong. It just means that's, that's how they're feeling that day. Attitude will make all the difference in the world. And in fact, James deals with attitudes. Uh, the, the attitude really of true faith. So if you turn to James, if you're not there already, turn to James chapter 4. It's been several weeks since we've been in James. James chapter 4. Beginning in verse 11. Actually, we'll begin in verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save you and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. James deals with, really, with two basic attitudes. One of which um, is denounced, I guess you could say. One of which is endorsed. He endorses one and denounces another. So we'll start with the one that he denounces. And we'll uh, look again at verse 16, because 16 really, although it is a, it is a kind of conclusion to verses uh, uh, 11 through 15, really it, it is a conclusion that serves as a theme for those verses. So what does verse 16 say? The attitude that he addresses is what? Arrogance. Boastful arrogance. Look again at 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. Arrogance and its twin sisters, uh, pride and presumption. And it's manifested in three ways. James says it, it, to, to, the, to the 
people that he was writing to, it was manifesting in three ways, and, and we have every reason to believe that these are the same three ways that it manifests amongst us as well. The first one is regarding others. Uh, if you look with me uh, at verse 11, um, pride and arrogance regarding others. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Three times the same word to speak against. Now, the ESV adds evil, and that would be contextual. They do that for contextual reasons. Three times he says, do not speak against one another. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. So, the first way that this attitude was manifesting itself was them speaking against one another. Now, three times. What does that mean? What does it mean? To, what does James mean when he says, don't speak against a brother? Or we understand brothers is inclusive here. Brothers and sisters. One option would be that when we speak against, we're, it is the kind of words we're using. They're, they're, he may be referring to a sense of harshness in, our, in, in how we speak to and about one another. I tend to believe, though, that it wasn't just how they were speaking, but what they were speaking about, because he introduces this notion of judging. And he seems to, he seems to combine those two notions, although... He separates them. He also combines them. To speak against and to judge. I, the, the NIV renders this, this verb, speak against, as slander. To, to not slander one another. So, to speak against probably has this notion of, of a critical negative attitude towards others. And not just a negative critical attitude, but that attitude produces... Speaking against one another. Remember the, the context in which these churches were existing. They were experiencing a great deal of persecution. And it's fascinating to me that a, a churches that face persecution, you'd think, you'd think the natural result would be for them to, to, to circle the wagons and that that persecution would draw, would draw them closer. But in fact, we see that what persecution produced was not a drawing together, but what brought out frustration, pride, arrogance, and they were in fact speaking against one another. I think we see that in our world too. Hardship, challenge, persecution oftentimes does not bring churches together. Oftentimes it tears them apart. And he says to them very clearly, you are not to speak against one another. But then he also brings up this concept of judging. Look with me again, because not only is speak against repeated, so also is judging. Do not speak against do not speak evil against one another. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Judge and judges is, is repeated. Look for words that are repeated. The two main ideas in these verses is speaking against and judging. 
Now the question is, what is the law that he's talking about? What are our options? Remember when you, when you approach interpretation, you want to always approach, what are the options? Um, it, well, I, I was going to ask, how many of your translations have a capital L? And what, what translation do you have? Amplified. Yours is capital L? Sal? New King James is capital L? Mine is a small one. That reflects uncertainty. We're, we're not sure. One option is he's talking about the law. He's talking about the Mosaic law, what we, what we call you know, the, the Ten Commandments and, and all of the prescriptions that he gives in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. That's one option. What's another option? Well, another option is the law of Christ. The law of Christ. And what is the law of Christ? Anybody remember what the law of Christ is or know what the law of Christ is? Jesus, Jesus, when the man said, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus told him the law of Christ. It is what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you look at the Ten Commandments, the first five are talking about loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and the second is about loving your neighbor. Vertical and horizontal. The, love, the, love, the law of Christ really is a summation of the Ten Commandments. Well, some of you may opt for the Mosaic Law. So, let's look at this way. If they were breaking the Mosaic Law... Now, we know James was the earliest... Well, we believe James was the earliest letter ever written. Ever written. Not ever written. Of the New Testament canon. And remember what Paul... What, what, in Paul's ministry, what was the one thing he battled more than anything else, it seems like? We have a whole book called Galatians that was written in response to the battle. This constant attempt by Jews to say to Christians, you can't become a Christian unless you are what? Circumcised. You have to become Jewish first. Then you can, be, then you can believe in Jesus. You can believe in Jesus, but you also must be circumcised. So maybe this, maybe this, was, an early, this was an early manifestation of that Judaizing element, that, that these people were judging, these Jewish believers were judging Gentile believers, saying, you have not been circumcised, and we're speaking against them. That's one option. That is if you take L, as capital L, that this is the Mosaic Law. We, we, we do know or well, we can rule out the fact that this notion of judging, they were not sinning. Those who were being judged against were not sinning. How do we know that? Because Jesus in himself in Matthew 18 gives very clear guidelines how to judge someone who is sinning. We call it church discipline. Remember Matthew 18? He said if someone is caught in a sin, you're to judge that. And you judge it by what? By going to them and telling them and confronting them uh, about their sin. And if they don't listen to you, what are we supposed to do? Bring two or three others and confront. We're judging. And he says if they won't listen to that, you bring them to the church. And then if they still don't repent, if they still don't turn, then you remove them from fellowship. That's judging. Matthew 7. I call it the sinner's favorite verse. Judge not, lest ye be judged. But they don't read the rest. 
He's saying you don't judge. He says you judge with the right motive. You judge with, from a right perspective. So this judging couldn't have been... He, James couldn't be castigating them and denouncing them for them judging others if what the others were doing was sin. He would commend them if they were sinning. So we know that who, whoever they're judging, were, they were not committing sin. So whether it's a capital L as the Mosaic Law or the Ceremonial Law or if it was a small L, the Law of Christ... This judgment, this speaking against, was unfounded. Whether it was by the way that they were speaking, or by the words that they were using, maybe they were judging people's motives, maybe they were judging people's actions, someone's behavior, we don't know. But all of this stemmed, this speaking against, this. and, and, and by the way, look with me again, this is really difficult stuff. Let's read it very carefully. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Now, what does that mean? You're reading your Bible and you're reading James and you read that. We just usually keep going, right? What does that mean? To judge a brother, in your essence, you are judging the law. We don't, we don't really know. It's, it's difficult to understand what he means there. Uh, let me give you my take, as best I can tell. In essence, what he's saying is that when I judge a brother or sister, in effect, in effect, I am usurping the place of the law, whether it be the Mosaic law or the law of Christ, that when I do that, I am saying that law is not sufficient. The law, whatever it is, requires me. It requires me to make that determination. So maybe in that, that's the sense in which he means you speak against the law and you judge the law. You say the judge is insufficient or that the law is insufficient. And, and in a sense he's saying you hold the law in contempt, which is the epitome of arrogance. It is a matter that he is talking about of taking the law into our own hands, literally. And in so doing, in any effect, what we are doing is we are judging the law and we are speaking against the law. And what does he say in verse 12? Listen, there's only one person who has the authority to do what you are doing. And that is the one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. I was on a retreat one time and uh, I went into the men's restroom and I went to go to the bathroom. And above the urinal of all places, I'll never forget this, there was a big poster that says, Two Fundamental Truths to Enlightenment. Truth number one, there is a God. Truth number two, you're not him. That's what Jesus is saying. Or that's what James is saying. Yeah, there, there is one who is, who is judge. There is one who is a lawgiver. But you're not him. 
and you are usurping his role. We don't know what the nature of the speaking against was. We don't know what people were doing that they were judging them. But for James, it, does, it really doesn't matter, apparently, or he would have told us. The, the, the point he is dealing with is, is boastful and arrogant, prideful, presumptuous spirit that judges and speaks against brothers and sisters in Christ. But more fundamentally, I think, he deals with this pride and presumption as it relates to control of our lives. Look with me at verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. He's saying he's not opposed to planning. See, I hear this so much. He's not opposed to planning. He's not opposed to business planning. He's not opposed to Dan going, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open, a, I wanna open a, 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 a new car wash in Aurora. And, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set it up and I'm going to meet with a, a, you know, a land developer. And I'm going to meet with a, a fine, by the, I, I'm his finance guy, by the way. Long story. Um, is that wrong? No. In and of itself, planning and business planning is not wrong. In fact, Proverbs says a great deal about planning <laughs> and, and planning for the future. This is not about planning. This is not about saying, next year, I want to go visit someplace. That's, that's not... Remember, he's dealing with attitudes. He's not opposed to planning per se. He's not opposed to profit. There are many who look at this and they say, see, profit's bad, profit's evil. He's not opposed to entrepreneurship. We, we see Lydia in the book of Acts was an entrepreneur. She was on a business trip. She was in Philippi. She was from Thyatira. And she's in Philippi and she's doing business. Not once is, was there any denouncement or condemnation of what she was doing. This is not about planning. This is not about making money. This is not about profit. This is all about an attitude. An attitude that I think is best articulated. My degree, by the way, undergraduate degree is English. And my concentration was English lit. And so we we, we read uh, English authors, particularly English poets. And one I remember, as I was preparing this sermon, I remember William Ernest Henley in his poem Invictus. And this is a famous poem. Most of you have heard the last lines. But I think this captures this notion of verse 13 of this prideful arrogance that I'm actually in control of my life. This misguided notion that any of us are really ultimately in control of our lives. Listen to this poem. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. In the fell clutch of circumstance I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance my head is bloody but unbowed. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. 
And here's the line all of us have probably heard. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. See, this is what I think James is getting at. These people, this, the, the, the fact that they were traveling and, and, and doing business and making profit was just the, the illustration that he used to illustrate this attitude. That I am master of my fate. I am captain of my soul. I am in control. I, I am ultimately in control of my life. And when we actually believe that we are the masters of our fate and we are the captains of our soul, we, we experience a kind of delusion. It is a kind, in fact, a kind of, of atheism. It, it, it is a, at, at best an, agnostic, uh, an agnosticism, but it, it, is a, it is a kind of atheism where God is not a part of the equation at all. It's a misplaced focus. It's a misplaced treasure. And, and see, the text says, you who say, we'll go to this town, spend a year. It's not, it's not just the words that they were speaking. It was the attitude. It was the heart attitude behind the words. I'm in control. I am master of my fate. I am captain of my soul. But thirdly, not just control of our lives, but the aspect of control of our lives is we, can, we, we, we forget about the brevity of life. Look at verse 14. You do, yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's, this sounds like Ecclesiastes to me, does it not? Is this meant to produce discouragement? Uh, for, for God to say, you know what, bro, you, you are here for, you are like a puff of smoke. Your span of years on earth, Moses said this in, in, in Psalm 19, our span of years is nothing. You're, you're, a, you're a puff of smoke in, in, in comparison to God's, all of history. And yet, you have this attitude of saying, I'm in control of my life. And he says, you don't even, you don't even, you can't even control tomorrow, much less next year. Doesn't mean we don't plan, doesn't mean we don't save. No, he's not saying that. Don't hear me saying that. He's talking about attitude. The assumption that tomorrow is promised. Not just that, but an arrogant assumption that it is. I, 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 I think this is best seen if you turn to Luke chapter 12. Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 12. Everyone's heard the, this parable. In verse 13, some in the crowd said, Now this obviously is a different context. He's, he's addressing a different point, but I think it, it, makes, it makes the point that James is, is making as well. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Verse 14. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter, arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, and, and for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He told him this parable. 
saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he, he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. That's, jo- that's uh, James verse 13. I'm going to do this, I'll have this. When I get this done, when I get my degree, then I'll be able to do this. And when I do that, I'll be able to have this, and I'll get by that. Now, again, was there anything wrong with this guy wanting to build bigger barns? No. Because we read, he says, I say to, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool! You're a fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself. Now, now, the period's not after himself. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, but is not rich toward God. See, God had been left out of the equation. He had made this assumption that life, that God had given some kind of promise for a long, long, long life. None of us have that promise. Some of us may, may indeed live a long, 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 long life, but we don't know. Uh, Corey shared with me a meme that he saw that, make sure I get it right, Corey, that, that, that there was this long line of people, and at the end of the line there was this kind of this column, and, and the implication was that was the time of their death. And the point was, everybody's in line. (laughs) You're in line. At a certain point, your number's going to be called. Not not random chance, but the days, in fact, the Scriptures say, my days have been ordained by God. But we don't know what those are. It is arrogant presumption to leave God out of the equation, to say that I'm actually in control of my life, and to, and, and to make this broad assumption that I've been I've been promised a long life. L- listen, uh, we, we need one, one of the one of the problems I think that we see in this COVID generation is blatant pride and presumption that I actually have control over my life. That if I wear a mask or I get a shot. Or if I stand six feet feet from someone, I can control the fate of my life. And I can preserve my life. And God would say, you fool, today, that doesn't protect you. Now, I'm not suggesting dangerous behavior. I'm not suggesting, you know, the the, the adage of jump out of an airplane without a parachute and say, well, if it's my time, it's my time. I'm not talking about that. It's this attitude that I am in control of my life, I'm in control of my event, the events of my life, and I'm in control of the destiny of my life, and I can either prolong it or I, I can shorten it. Guys, I think what James is saying is we are not in control. And the, this, this boastful, arrogant, prideful attitude saying that I am in control not just of the events of my life, but in the duration of my life. Liz, our future is unknowable. But our future is also unavoidable. You cannot control your future. 
So I have a economically, I have a big pension. I have a lot saved up. You don't know what may happen to that. I'm in good health. And as Dan and Tom, until you're not. Did you predict that? Getting knocked off the ladder? Did you predict? Well, I didn't know where to start. I don't mean to make light of it, Tom. I'm... The future, our future is unknowable, it's unavoidable, it's uncontrollable. We can plan, but we plan with an attitude knowing that tomorrow is not promised to us. But there is an attitude that is commended, that is endorsed. Look with me back at Mark chapter 4, verse 15. Actually, 10 and 15. 10 is kind of a hinge verse. 10... Uh, uh, summarize the, the verses that came before, but it also introduces these verses that come after. James chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Look at verse 15. Instead, instead of this arrogant self-presumption, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. <laughs> I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen people just use that phrase. Uh, James 4, yeah, James 4, verse 15. Did I say Mark? Okay, that's not a good sign, folks. James 4, 15. So here, here's what people do. Uh, hey, Tom, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring that saw back to you tomorrow. Lord willing... Uh, I'm going to... Uh, hey, Vicki, I'm going to run to the 7-Eleven. I'll be right back. Lord willing! This is not meant to be a mantra. It's not... This, he, when he's, again, neither did just saying, I will go to this and such and such town to make a profit was wrong. It's not... It's not you don't have to say the Lord willing every time you say you're going to do something. Because he's dealing with what? Not your words. He's dealing with your attitude. If we have an attitude of humble humility, an attitude recognizing life is not promised to me, but I don't therefore have to say, Lord willing, every time I say something. That's not, I don't think, the application. It's not just about parroting a phrase, but it's about a hard attitude, about humble submission and dependence. It's okay to make vacation plans for next year. As long as we have an attitude of, you know what? I may be dead tomorrow. Can we talk about that? One, any of us might be dead tomorrow. We don't know. We have no control over that. It's humble dependence, humble submission. We see this in Paul's life in Acts 18 and 1 Corinthians 4. Where, where he, he told them his plans, but he, he, he couched those plans and understanding that, that there was no guarantee, there was no promise. One of the, one of the pro- issues I had with the whole promise keeper movement was this very thing. Not that we are not to keep promises. We are. The scripture tells us, let your yes be yes, your no be no. We are to be people of our word. We are to be faithful. But, but this notion that I, I can actually control my life. 
God's meticulous control of my life, not only in the events of my life, but the duration of my life, but it's a gracious control. Uh, Romans 8.28, we quote it all the time, do we not? God works all things together for good. All things. I call that His meticulous control. God can only say that if He is in control of every minute detail of my life. He is in control. So all of you control freaks, God is not in control. You are not in control. God is in control. Humble yourself, He said. If the Lord wills, we will live. If He doesn't, I won't. He has one concluding consideration to having said this. He says, so, whatever, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. This is not just a, a general statement. This is really, he's talking about what he has just said too. If you continue in your prideful presumption about your life, about controlling your life, and you do not humble yourself, Before God, it is sin. But I also add this. This is this is what we call a sin of omission. That we can sin by commission. We sin by the things that we do, but we also sin by what we fail to do. So when we have an attitude of humble submission, um, and, and, and we understand that we are not we are not the masters of our fate. We are not the captains of our soul. And while we are encouraged to, to plan and to save and, and, and to get excited about vacations, underlying all of that is an attitude of, of a humble recognition and a humble submission that nothing is promised to us in this life. But it's a humble recognition of our finiteness and our helplessness. When I think about aspects or characteristics of the American culture, historically, not now, historically, it was this this can-do attitude. This pull yourself up by the bootstraps. We can make this happen. We can do this. And I think there is a sense in which that is okay. But there also needs to be a humble recognition of our finiteness, of our absolute, complete helplessness. But this should be a source of contentment, not frustration. When, when James says, humble yourselves before God and He will exalt you. When he says, recognize that you are not in control of your life and that you submit every detail to Him. It is not meant to be a source of frustration to us. It, it should be a source of contentment to know that my future and all the details of my life is being controlled by my loving, heavenly, all-knowing, all-powerful Father. The truth of James 4 is not meant to breed frustration. It is not meant to be a straitjacket. It is meant to bring a great source of contentment to say... I'm not in control. And number two, so humble recognition of our finiteness and our helplessness produces or is a source of contentment, not frustration. 
but a humble acceptance of God's providential plan for my life is not a source of contention. It's a source of comfort. It's a source of comfort, not fear. If when I said the words, you are not in control of your life and you could be dead tomorrow, if you experienced fear, that's not what God wants you to take away from this. It is to be a source of comfort. To know the trajectory of my life, while I certainly, we certainly make bad decisions and, and, and we sin and we fall short, the ultimate trajectory of our life is not up to us. And we can rest knowing that God's providential plan for us is what's going to happen to us. Nothing can thwart that. Nothing can change that. I am not the master of my fate. I'm not the captain of my soul. He is. And that is to be a source of comfort, not fear. To think that I, I might get COVID and die is not meant to be a source of fear. It's a source, as a Christian, it's a source of comfort. I don't have to worry. What does Hebrews say? Why did you, one of the reasons Jesus came... Well, he, bear with me. Hebrews 2. Turn back one book. Hebrews chapter 2. Let's just read it. Chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, like... Again, Hebrews... I did say that right. right? Hebrews 2, 14. He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What does the fear of death produce in someone's life? Slavery. He came to deliver all those who through fear of death are living in perpetual slavery. This is not meant to produce fear. We're not to be afraid of death. I'm telling you, there's a lot of things we should be afraid of before we're afraid of death. We should be afraid of not honoring our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ long before we fear dying of a flu. A humble recognition of our finiteness and our helplessness is... is, is a source of contentment, not frustration. A humble acceptance of God's providential plan and will for my life is not a source of fear, but a source of, is a source of comfort. By all means, plan. I do it all the time. We're doing it now. Is it, will we, our future is a church. Where, what direction we need to go? But all of that is, is not bad. It's the attitude with which we do it. Is our attitude prideful presumption that we are actually in control of my life? Plan, save, do all that stuff, but underneath all of that is a humble recognition that God is in control and that God has a providential plan for me. I may be dead tomorrow. That's not should be a source of fear. That's a source of comfort. That's in His hands, not mine. Let's pray. Father, uh, we have a lot of contemporary applications for these words. 
And Lord, only, only each one of us in our heart of hearts can answer the question of whether we um, have a form of, of prideful arrogance, thinking that we actually control not only the events of our lives, but the duration of our lives. That we, that we live in a way where we ignore your providence, we ignore your dominion, or worse yet, uh, we resist it. So again, Father, we, it, it brings us great, a great deal of comfort and contentment, knowing that our very lives, our very souls are in your hands. You are the captain of our fate. You, um, you are the master of our fate. You are the captain of our souls. And in that we take great comfort and rest. We thank you and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen. Would you please stand and join us?